I want to focus your attention this morning on Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I'm just going to read the first two verses of Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Let's pray together. God, your ways are higher than our ways, and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And what you do oftentimes makes no sense to us. You work from the bottom. You're counterintuitive. You're irreligious. And I pray now that you would speak your truth that alone sets us free into every heart, every mind that is either in the room or online. I pray that you would do the work that only you can do. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our needs, you know our fears, you know our insecurities, you know our secrets, you know our struggles, our sins, those things that keep us up at night, those things we do when nobody's looking. You know it all. And you summon us to come to you to find rest. That you are always inviting sinners to your table. Always inviting broken, flawed, failed people to be forgiven and loved forever. And so I pray that we would take you up on that invitation this morning and that you would meet us right where we are. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I am uh, starting a two-week series this morning simply called We Are the Sanctuary. I think it's really important um, to know as a church, to know who we are and to know why we exist. Our mission matters. Our, our message matters. What we do here is very intentional. What we say here is very intentional. And so usually at the beginning of each new year, I like to take a couple of weeks just to sort of reiterate who we are as a church, our mission, our message, why we exist, why we do the things that we do, who we are. And so I want to spend the next two weeks really looking at our mission and our message. This week we'll take a look at our mission and then next week we'll take a look at our message. But I want to begin by saying that on the one hand, there's nothing novel about the sanctuary, okay? We're not, we're not trying to be innovative, we're not trying to be original. We're not trying to be trendy. We're not trying to be something fashionable or chic or stylish. We're not pretending to, to say or do something that no one has ever said or done before. I like to say that we are simply 21st century missionaries of grace brokering the good news of the past into the present. And with that in mind, I like to say that in one sense, we're, we're old-fashioned in a brand new way. We're not trying to do anything new. We're trying to recover something that is so old and has been lost for so long that it may seem new, but in reality, it's not new. 
What you hear here on a hear here, what you hear here on a weekly basis uh, is not Tullian's message. Okay, I've had a handful of conversations with people over the years who say, well, I've never heard this before. I've been in church my whole life and I've never heard this before. Uh, where did you find this? Is this your message? Uh, no, it's not. Um, it's just, it's so old and has been lost for so long that it seems new. We're so used to going to church and hearing do more, try harder, get better messages. We're, we're so used to going to church and, and hearing uh, a life coach teach us how to live a better life. But that's not why the church exists. We exist first and foremost to make one simple announcement week in and week out, and that is it is finished. I've told you this story before, I think, and we'll get into this more next week when I talk about the message. But um, I had a, a friend um, with the church that I previously pastored in Fort Lauderdale also had a school, uh, preschool through 12th grade, a school. And one of our seniors uh, graduated and went to Vanderbilt University, super, super sharp um, young man. And uh, about, I don't know, three months into his first semester, he emailed me and said, Pastor Tullian, can you please uh, recommend some good churches in the Nashville area that I can visit? And so I recommended a few churches that I was familiar with, some of whom were pastored by friends of mine. And he responded and said, I've already visited those. Do you have any other suggestions? And so I said, well, why don't you give me a call so I can figure out what's going on? So he called me and he said, listen, I've been to those churches and they are doing a lot of good things. But he said, let me be honest with you. I, um, I hear wherever I go, I hear from my teachers, from my parents, from my coaches, from my boss. Wherever I go, I'm hearing do more, try harder, get better. Every sector of society is telling me to do more, try harder, get better. And he said, I'm exhausted. I just need one place where I can go once a week and be reminded that it is finished. Well, that's the predominant reason why Every church ought to exist. That is the reason why this church exists. So we're not, we're not trying to be something fashionable or stylish. We're not, we're not thinking. We don't think that we're saying or doing something that's never been said or done before. So on the one hand, um, there's nothing novel about the sanctuary. But on the other hand, I do think that what God is doing here is sadly uncommon. I do believe that. Um, now, you know, the word sanctuary literally means rest. Um, and we named this church the sanctuary because we want to be a family where it is safe to be real, where it's safe to be honest about your sins and your struggles and your secrets without fear of rejection. Historically, as you may know, churches were places where fugitives could find protection from the law. If you remember, for instance, uh, the remarkable, beautiful story of Les Mis, Jean Valjean, who is running from the law, finds sanctuary in a church, in a convent. Uh, and as, as long as he was there, Inspector Javert could not reach him. They could knock at the door, but they couldn't go inside. In the sanctuary, um, Jean Valjean was free from the the law, was free from the condemnation of the law. Um, 
And so we, we believe that the sanctuary is a place. It's a place where fugitives, where lawbreakers can come and find rest. Because every person, and this is so ironic to me, every person who fled to a church for sanctuary knew they were guilty. Everyone. That's why they went. Because they knew they were guilty and they knew that they could escape the long arm of the law if they stayed within the walls of the sanctuary. Every person who fled to a church for sanctuary knew they were guilty. How ironic then that churches are now known not as places where guilty people who know they're guilty gather, but rather places where people who think they're good gather. Okay, I mean, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard over the years from people who, when we start talking about church, for whatever reason, say, I, I stopped going a long, long time ago. And when I would ask them why, they would say, well, I'm just, I mean, I'm not good enough to go. Those are, those are pretty good people. I've told you before that I grew up thinking that church was where the good people of society gathered. Church is where the good people went. I mean, after all, it's Sunday morning, and you could be doing a lot of other things on Sunday morning besides being here and singing songs and, and listening to some guy stand up and talk. There are a lot of other things you could be doing. The very fact that you're here means you're one of the good people, okay? That's kind of what I grew up thinking, you know, we put on our Sunday best, we got cleaned up, and we went to church. And church was a place where good, moral, clean people went on Sunday mornings. And so the unintended consequence of that is that you grow up believing that church is for good people, that Christianity is for good people. That's why when I was 16, I ran away from it all because I concluded that if Christianity is for good people, I knew I wasn't good, so therefore Christianity must not be for me. It wasn't until much later in life that I realized that Christianity is for weak, broken people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people. But ironically and sadly, church is known today as not a place where guilty people who know they're guilty gather, weak people who know they're weak gather, bad people who know they're bad gather, but rather a place where good people go, a place where good people gather. Um, see, we believe Church is a place where guilty people gather to be reminded that because of what Jesus has done for us, we are safe from the judgment we deserve. That's why those doors are painted red. It's precisely why those doors are painted red, because they serve as a reminder every time we walk into this room that we come into the presence of God based on the work of another and because of what Jesus has done for us, this is sanctuary. This is the place where we can gather to be free from the judgment and condemnation of God because Jesus took God's judgment for us. So it's a, it's a reminder. That's what we want this place to be. It's a scandal to me, for instance, that churches tend to be the scariest places rather than the safest places for fallen people to fall down and broken people to break down. It's a scandal to me. Um, and the reason churches tend to be the scariest places rather than the safest places for fallen people to fall down is because most churches think God's primary goal for you is to make you good. To make you good. That God is on a mission in your life to make you a good person. Um, and so you don't feel safe admitting when you're bad. And so church becomes a place where people pretend that they're better than they are. 
Um, but if you think, and listen carefully to this, okay? I, I hope and pray this will set you free. I know it set me free. If you think God's primary goal for you is that you be an example of morality rather than a trophy of his grace, you'll never, ever be honest about your sins and your struggles and your secrets, ever. You will always feel the pressure to pretend that you're better than you are. If you believe that God's primary goal for you is to make you an example of goodness, an example of morality, rather than a trophy of his grace, you'll never be totally honest about your sins and your struggles and your secrets. You'll always feel the pressure to pretend that you're better than you are. When Stacy and I first moved here, we had a conversation with a woman. I've shared this before a while ago, but we had a conversation with a woman who asked us what we were doing here, why we moved here why we were moving here, and, and we told her, and she said, you know, I, I, uh, my husband and I used to go to church, my first husband and I used to go to church a long time ago, now I go from time to time, but we began inquiring about her story, because she hadn't been to church in a long time, and she said, you know, uh, my, my marriage years ago, my marriage was, my first marriage was, was on the rocks for about 10 years, but we never told anybody in our church about it, because we were afraid we would be looked down on because our marriage was not good. And so we faked it, and it ended in divorce, and we wound up being rejected anyway because our marriage failed. And, and I said, we, when Stacy and I told them that we were, both of us have been divorced and remarried, um, that made her feel a little bit better. Uh, but at the same time, it, she gave voice to the impression that people have, that church is not the place where you can tell the truth about yourself. Uh, it's it, when I, for instance, and I've shared this before, um, every time I stand up in front of Christian people or I'm in a conversation with Christian people and talk about how my first marriage ended in part because I was unfaithful to my first wife, I, I get less nervous telling non-Christians that than I do Christians. I just do. Um, it's sad to me that when somebody, and we've heard stories like this on numerous occasions, that... Uh, when somebody, when a Christian is really failing, falling, struggling, whatever the case may be, they feel scared oftentimes to tell their Christian friends. They feel less scared telling their, their non-Christian friends. They, they find less judgment from their non-Christian friends than they do from their Christian friends. Um, well, I, um, we think that's a tragedy. We think that the Christian community should be the safest place for you to bring your secrets and your sins and your struggles. But we know that because we have been forgiven much, because we have been loved much, that we are people of forgiveness and people of love. So if your marriage is failing or you're in the middle of an affair or one of your kids goes off the deep end, is church the first place or the last place you run to for help? If you find out that your husband's addicted to pornography or that your wife is an alcoholic or that your high school daughter is pregnant or, or that your business is failing and you have to declare bankruptcy, is church the first place or the last place you can talk about those things? For far too many people that I've talked to, it's, it's the last. We want sanctuary to be different than that. We want it to be the place where the first place people think to run to when their life is falling apart, 
when they're crashing and burning, when they're bottoming out. So the only churches, in my opinion, the only churches that will thrive in any meaningful way going forward will not be castles of purity where only the morally fit feel comfortable, but rather basements of grace where all are embraced and forgiven, places where sin does not shock and grace still amazes. I have a friend named Pat Thurmer who may be watching this morning. If you are, good morning, Pat. He was supposed to be here last week to preach for you um, from Fort Myers, but got sick and couldn't make it. But um, I remember him telling me one time that church is the only institution left in the world that still believes in original sin. So why is it that we are so shocked when we actually encounter it? (laughs) Which is so true. So true. We want to be a place where sin does not shock and grace still amazes. We want to be a church where worn out people find God's promised rest, where guilty people find God's promised grace, where failed people find God's promised forgiveness. We want to be a place of safety and refuge where people can come as they are, not as they should be, and find love and joy and laughter and hope and healing and acceptance and mercy and help. Our mission statement, which is all over the place, should be anyway, I know it's big in the lobby, Um, it simply says the sanctuary is a church where God's boundless love meets a broken world. Okay, now that, that statement assumes two things. It clearly states and assumes two things, that we are all broken and that God's love is boundless. The sanctuary exists. It's a church where God's boundless love meets a broken world. In fact, um, unless we see ourselves as broken people living in a broken world with other broken people, God's boundless love will never sweep us off of our feet. As long as we think we're pretty good people, that we are relatively deserving of God's favor, then God's favor will never blow our minds. It will never amaze us. It will never sweep us off of our feet. But when we stare in the face of God's undeserved mercy and his unconditional love, knowing full well that we are not deserving of it, that God doesn't love us because we're lovable, we are lovable because God loves us, when we can look at the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God and not feel entitled to it, but rather feel blown away by the fact that he gives it to us minus our merit, we become people of grace. We become people of mercy. We become people of forgiveness and people of love. We don't walk around thinking we're better than other people. We walk around going, me too. Me too. Um... One thing I say all the, all the time is that the sanctuary is a recovery place masquerading as a church, okay? Um, I believe that. I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I absolutely believe that. Um, and when I say that, sometimes people look at me and they think, what do you mean? Like, is this a place full of uh, recovering drug addicts and alcoholics? Because if that's true, that doesn't describe me. Therefore, this church is probably not for me, Okay. That's, that's not what I mean. Um, you see, we tend to think that those who are in recovery programs are weak and that those of us who aren't are strong. After all, we have not succumbed to the destructive demon of addiction like they have. But it's a lie. It's a lie. 
It's a lie that the devil wants you to believe about yourself. See, the truth is we are all in recovery, every single one of us. Every single one of us have unhealthy relationships with something that we depend on to soothe the pain. Something we depend on to make us feel strong and secure and safe and important and in control. Your addiction may not be alcohol, but it may be getting approval. Your addiction may not be getting high, but it may be getting attention or having to be right. Your addiction may not be sex, but it may be shopping. Okay? It may not be food or nicotine, but it may be financial security or fitness. You see, um, there, there are two types of people in this world, okay? Two types. Uh, there are people in recovery who admit that they are and people in recovery who think that they're not. But there's no one who's not in recovery, That's just another way of saying that we are all broken people living in a broken world with other broken people. That's all it means. We're all in recovery. There is is no one who is not in recovery. You see, it's not, and this is a very deep and strong conviction of Stacy and mine, it is not enough for local churches to have recovery ministries Okay, where, you know, you got this group meeting over here and this group meeting over there. While that is good, it's not enough. Uh, The church must begin to see itself as a recovery ministry. The largest recovery, we have various recovery groups that meet here, but the largest recovery group that meets here is in this room on Sunday mornings. Okay, we're, we're not, it's not like the people on Tuesday nights or the people on Thursday nights or whatever nights, the people over there are in recovery, but we're not. Now, if we ever find ourselves in need of recovery, maybe we'll go, but we're not there yet. We don't need to be there yet. We're, we all are in recovery. And this, on Sunday morning, is our biggest recovery meeting. Um, because if the church doesn't begin to see itself as a recovery ministry, it will fail to connect the deep realities of God's amazing grace to the dark regions of human need. Which is why church attendance across the board and around the world is just declining more and more and more every year. It's, it's become irrelevant. Not because we need to jazz up the music or get the smoke going. No, I'm not talking about that stupidity, okay? I'm not talking about that. When churches think that, well, we've really got to jazz things up because we got to get the young people. In order to do it, we got to be cool, okay? Stupid, okay? I'm not talking about that. It's very self-righteous for me to say, and I'm admitting it, okay? At least I'm admitting it. I'm in recovery too, um, but uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I- I'm talking about the reason churches seem irrelevant is because real life isn't dealt with in the deepest, darkest ways. Idolatry, addiction, struggle, secret, sin, all that stuff. Preachers are not life coaches telling you how to live a better life. That's not our job. Our job is to simply announce to the world the one who came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we'll never... Realize how desperately we need Jesus unless we realize that we are broken, sinful, idolaters, 
all addicts. Um, and so we, we want to be, be a place that connects the deep realities of God's amazing grace to the dark regions of human need. We want to be real, transparent, earthy. The verses I read in Luke chapter 15, two of my favorite verses in all the Bible, uh, two things pop out, obvious things. Uh, the first verse tells us the kinds of people who were attracted to Jesus, and the second verse tells us the kinds of people who were appalled at Jesus. And those two groups exist still today. The first thing to notice in verse 1, where the writer says, where Luke says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. The first thing to notice is the kinds of people who were attracted to Jesus, social and moral outcasts, okay, spiritual outsiders, people with bad religious resumes, people who knew they were bad. These weren't church people. And I've said for years now and years that if we're not attracting the same kinds of people Jesus attracted, we're not preaching the same message Jesus preached. Um, we have various ways, churches these days have various ways to gauge the health of a church. Church leaders talk about financial stability, growth in attendance, buildings, sound doctrine, and so on and so forth as ways to gauge the health of a church. But the real measure... Okay, the realest measure of church health is the presence of sinners who know they are sinners. That's the real measure of church health. And you know it when you walk into a room. I've told you this before, but one of the things I love doing more than anything else is to uh, visit with recovery centers and visit with people who are in recovery. And I've said one of the reasons that it is so refreshing to me is because it's so much more freeing to sit in a room with people who know that they're weak than to sit in a room with people who think that they're strong. It's so much more refreshing to talk to people who know that they're bad and that they failed rather than people who think that they're good and that they are um, a picture of success. We may inspire people when we talk about our, excess, our successes. We may inspire them temporarily when we talk about our successes. But we connect with people when we share our failures, when we share our struggles, when we share the hard things and the heavy things of life. That's, that's where we connect with people. Um, and so the real measure of church health is the presence of sinners who know they're sinners. And you know the difference. When you walk into a place and go, man, I feel the pressure to wear my mask everywhere I go all week long, and this is the one place where I can go and take off my mask. That's a need. That's a bona fide need. Sanctuary. Um, the second thing to notice, verse 2, are the kinds of people who were appalled at Jesus. Religious people spiritual insiders, uh, people with very impressive religious resumes, people who thought they were good. Notice verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I love that. I mean, they were really frustrated, frustrated by this, by the kinds of people that Jesus was hanging out with. I mean, he clearly was an imposter. He was not God like he said he was. He couldn't be. God would never touch and mingle with the kind of filth that Jesus was touching and mingling with. This scandalized them. 
Um, you remember John 8, the story, the well-known story of the woman caught in adultery, dragged out before Jesus, uh, and they did so, the religious leaders dragged this woman, caught in the act before Jesus in the middle of the town, and said, the law says we should stone an adulterer, what do you say? Okay, and you know the scene, Jesus writes something in the sand and then says, uh, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone, and beginning with the oldest, they dropped their rocks and walked away. Okay, it's a phenomenal story. But there's one part of the story that oftentimes goes overlooked. Um, and I noticed it for the very first time last spring when I preached on this passage. Um, one of the things to notice about this passage is that Jesus doesn't defend this woman. Okay? At no point does he say she isn't guilty of adultery. At no point. Um, I mean, the accusation against her is not false. They did catch her in the act of adultery. She is guilty as charged. It's true. This woman is guilty of breaking God's law. Now, we tend to read this story and we look with sympathy on this woman and we look with disdain on these religious leaders. But think about it for a minute. What if this was your wife? Okay, what if it was your mother? What if it was your husband's lover? Or your son's wife? You begin to understand the disdain that people had for this woman. Okay, it's easy to look at it from a distance and go, they're mean and poor woman. But she is guilty. I'm guilty of adultery. I know the kind of damage that does to people and the damage that does to families, the damage that does to trust from people that you love forever. I mean, this is no small thing. This is destructive behavior, real destructive. So we tend to look at sympathy with this woman, but the fact of the matter is she's guilty. And if this were your wife, or if this were your mother, or if this was your husband's lover, or your son's wife, you would probably look at her with disdain also. I mean, it would be one thing if Jesus, and yet Jesus embraced her, okay? Now it would be, he didn't defend her, that's very important, but he embraced her. Okay, it would be one thing if Jesus embraced the falsely accused. That's not scandalous. Someone who's falsely accused, someone who other people are saying is guilty, but in reality they're not guilty, they're innocent. It's one thing for Jesus to embrace people like that. That's not scandalous. What is scandalous is that Jesus embraced the guilty, the justly accused. That's the scandal. You see, what scandalizes religious people is not who God leaves out, but who God lets in. That's what scandalizes religious people, okay? At no point did Jesus say, hey, she's innocent. Give her a break. We all make mistakes. He didn't say that. She is guilty as charged for destructive behavior. And yet Jesus embraced her. That is what scandalized the religious community. Um, Robert Capon, I, I read this to Stacy last night, Robert Capon, who I've quoted a thousand times, um, who is amazing and the greatest writer since the Apostle Paul, in my humble opinion, um, who died back in 2013. But he said this, 
and I love this, so true. Jesus didn't prevent sinners from sinning. He went around forgiving them right and left. <laughs> I mean, in one sentence, I told Stacy last night, I said, in one sentence, the guy dismantled everything I grew up believing. <laughs> one sentence. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. He upends the apple cart with one sentence. Jesus didn't prevent sinners from sinning. He went around forgiving them right and left. And that drives people who think that they're good nuts. Drives them nuts. You see, the problem with the religious people in John 8 was not that they said she was guilty. She was. That's not their, their issue is not that they were leveling a false accusation. It wasn't that they said she was guilty. It was that they thought that they were better than her. That was the issue. That's the point Jesus wanted to drive home by saying, whichever one of you is without sin, cast the first stone. Jesus wasn't saying, she's not guilty. He was saying, she's guilty, so are you. All of us are on the same level playing field of need. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I don't mind. I actually take some pride, <laughs> perhaps wrongly. I don't mind if, if people grumble and say that the sanctuary welcomes sinners and eats with them. I do not mind that. Wouldn't it be great if every church was known for that? Every church. It would be amazing if every church was known for welcoming sinners and eating with them. It would be amazing if every church was known as a place where sinners could gather and hear that they're forgiven. It would be amazing if every church was a place where people felt the freedom to tell the truth about themselves without fear of rejection because they know that the only approval they need is God's and they already have it. That would be amazing if every church were like that. It's our hope. It's our prayer. Martin Luther said, may a merciful God, and his, his prayer is, is my prayer for our church. May a merciful God preserve me from a church in which everyone is good. He said, I want to be and remain in a church of the faint-hearted, the feeble, and the ailing, who feel and recognize their failures, who cry to God for comfort and help, and who believe in the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that's just, it's just relieving to hear those words. Things feel lighter just hearing those words. You see, when it's all said and done, Christianity is for sinners. It's for sinners. It's for sex addicts and shopaholics and control freaks and adulterers and blame shifters and gossips and alcoholics and liars and narcissists and worry warts. It's for the selfish, it's for the angry, it's for the arrogant, it's for you and it's for me. You see, sinners are the only people that God gives his grace to. That's it. 